If you guys want to go ahead and turn with me uh, to Jude, we are yet again back in this little epistle, this little book nestled between 3 John and the book of Revelation. Uh, you'll be able to turn there in your sleep uh, by the time we're done. Um, or uh, if you're using digitally, then it's easy enough already. But So during our study of Jude, we have come to understand that the heart of this epistle is really in verse 3, right? as Jude calls us to contend earnestly for the faith. Uh, This morning, after a few introductory comments, we'll look at verses 8 and the following. Um, The reality is, today, it is impossible to avoid the day-in and day-out bombardment of perversity and just destructive behavior in our world. You'll see, really, how how this ties into Jude, if you haven't made that connection already. But if you turn on the news today, you'll see evidence of the evil things that have, in all honesty, slowly over time, crept into our society. It didn't happen overnight, right? Uh, They've crept into our legal systems, into every branch of the government, and have gotten us to the place where we are. Um, In fact, even where a recent circuit court has just flat out attacked our constitutional rights. We have a president that is now all too happy to eliminate constitutional privileges altogether. We see the celebration of sexual perversion, homosexuality, transgenderism, lesbianism, and the like in our culture today. We have senators calling for the legalization of professional prostitution. We have congressmen who promote the use of puberty blockers on children, who insist on exposing young children without parental consent to perverted sexual education, misunderstanding God's view, or rather ignoring it altogether of sexuality, we see the celebration of all sorts of sensual, flesh-defiling wickedness at every level of government in our country today. It's undeniable. It's impossible to miss. And yet, we have to realize that this didn't happen overnight. In fact, it's been a long-planned attack. You can read books about it from the 80s. It's been planned over a long period of time by the enemy over many decades. Much of it started as subtle introductions contrary to the acceptable norms. One example would be the modern-day swimsuit. Before the 1900s, if you didn't know, swimsuits covered a woman's entire body typically, but... During the early 1900s, that began to change until we get to around the 1920s when Hollywood and Vogue began to sexualize the swimsuit. They promoted it as, quote, sexy and glam. That sexualization continued until about 1946 when a French designer, Louis Rayard, introduced the world to the first modern bikini. It was so scandalous in that day that he had to hire a Parisian showgirl to model it. Of course, you know what we have these days, right? Many beaches are not much different than the red light district, so it would seem. And it didn't happen overnight. It happened little by little little over time because not enough people resisted the perversity. That's just one example. We could go through the same with the perversion of marriage and relationships in general. That didn't happen overnight. The family unit's been attacked for decades. Now, we've gotten to the point where one of the most popular organizations today, Black Lives Matter, 
has publicly stated that they aim to destroy the nuclear family. In the past, their stand against the family alone would have been enough to discourage support. But that's not true today. Instead, they have major corporations who are basically groveling at their feet in order to support them, practically begging to give them money. That's where we are. In terms of honoring authority, I mean, we see the similar result recently, right? The general adherence to law and respect for law seems to be eroding weekly. I mean, you probably know that better than we all do. I'm not sure we even have weeks anymore where you can't find a riot or looting or destroying personal property, all the while resisting the law with utter contempt. And as if the attack against law and order weren't bad enough, for the general public, we now have many people at every level of government in support of abolishing law enforcement, the defund the police movement, as it were. So we see good, proper authority being attacked, not only by civilians, but by lawmakers themselves. Even our courts today, ironically, seem to have no respect for our land's most significant authority outside of Christ, which is the Constitution. So here again, we didn't get here overnight. How is it that we have senators who are more sympathetic to foreign powers, who wish to destroy our country, than they have the love for the country in which they serve? This incursion happened secretly, it happened quietly, and it's happened over a long time period until we've reached... I think, the point of no return. I don't believe we're going back. There's a war, a spiritual war, that's also happening within the church, and it occurs the same way as what has eroded our country. It's a secret war, a subtle war with an invisible enemy that, as Jude says, has crept in unnoticed. Just like our country didn't go from a culture of general modesty to a perverse culture overnight, neither does the church. Sin creeps in. Heresies are brought in little by little. After all, we know that Satan doesn't come like the cartoon caricature with big red horns and a red flag, right? No, he disguises himself as an angel of light, and so do those he uses in the church. So this is the very danger in which Jude desires to warn us. He says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And the reason is because for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who are long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Jude 3 and 4. So as we began this epistle, we looked at Jude's love and concern for the church. We saw that Jude in the beginning... Uh, And at the very end, gives the assurance of the believer. And I think that's because it's very easy in between to be disheartened over the battle. And so he says, no, believers, you are kept, you are beloved, you are called. But there is a battle to fight. We're thankful that he did that. So that was in verse 1. We saw Jude's transition then from making every effort to write a letter about common salvation to being moved by the Holy Spirit to write a letter beckoning us to war, calling us to earnestly contend for the faith in verse 3. This is the point of the entire book. 
that we contend for the faith. So Jude goes on to tell us in verse 4 why we had to contend. We have to contend because certain persons have crept into the church, right? Unnoticed, he says. We understand that. We're warned throughout the scriptures about false teachers, about heresies, false doctrines, and the deceitful ways of wicked men. And here, Jude is saying that they aren't just outside the church, but they're actually on the inside, which is far more dangerous. Well, we've learned that in our culture too, right? Our enemies who are on the inside are far worse at the moment than our enemies on the outside. They're destroying the country from inside out. And our outside enemies are just looking and laughing and waiting. The inside of the church is the same. There are enemies inside the church, the tares amongst the wheat who are deadly dangerous. And Jude says, beware. And then about two weeks ago, we moved into verses 5 through 7, where we looked at the first three examples, the first of three examples that Jude gave to warn us of this inevitable judgment against those who apostatize. Those who have crept in, those who bring in destructive heresies, as Peter says, Jude uses these past examples to really prove that God has consistently exercised His wrath against the ungodly and to warn any of those defectors in the church that He will continue to exercise His judgment. We saw that in verses 5-7. through Jude says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So although God loved His people and brought them out, He destroyed them because of their unfaithfulness, because of their apostasy. And Jude's saying, Remember this story. And then he goes on, because that's not enough, and he says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandon their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds of darkness for the judgment of the great day. So now we have God's beloved own people that he destroyed for unfaithfulness. But it's not just that. He also destroyed or will destroy these angels for the same reason. Wickedness, apostasy, immorality. And then he goes on to give a third example that every one of Jude's listeners would have known very well. He says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. All of these are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. This was meant to be frightening to Jude's audience. It was meant to frighten those who might be apostates. It was meant to frighten those who might be tempted to follow apostates, and it was meant to warn God's true people within the church against these who were apostate. So if you'll recall, these are the stories in which Jude, um, Jude's people would have easily recognized. We sort of took a tour through the history of those because we're a little further removed The first example of how God brought his people out of Egypt, we talked about just how much he was involved in that, right? So we witnessed the miraculous power of God in the ten plagues. Uh, We saw God part the Red Sea, saving the Israelites. We saw him close it up to save them. We saw God's generosity and provision as he gave them water, he gave them manna. These would have been the things that Jude is saying, remember all of this. 
that God did for His people. His presence guided them by pillars of smoke and fire. We saw that God was long-suffering with them. He loved them. He cared for them. And yet, in the end, because of their apostasy, because of their unbelief, He destroyed all but two. And of course, those who were under the age of 20 survived. So that brings us to last week. Last week, we covered the final two examples from Jude 6 and 7. We saw how angels were not above the wrath of God, right? They betrayed God. They defected. They too apostatized. Verse 6 reads, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So not even angels who apostatize escape God's wrath. These are heavenly beings, those who are above mankind in station. And yet, Jude warns us that God has judged them swiftly because of their apostasy. And of course, the last example was that of Sodom and Gomorrah, a city that in many ways I think resembles the current state of our own country. In fact, I would say it undeniably resembles the current state of our country. The wickedness of Sodom was so great that the men in the city rejected a proper desire for women and tried to rape holy angels. Just think about that. Angels who were men in appearance, such perversion, such wickedness, Jude says about them, these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Homosexuality in this case. In fact, we saw that it was so bad that the angels were forced to blind all of the men who were trying to push their way into Lot's house. In chapter 18 of Genesis, the Lord said this about Sodom, and you'll remember. He said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. And so Jude points to those three historical events all well-known and all in order to bring attention to the judgment of God that awaits those who defect, those who have crept in unnoticed and bring in destructive heresies. God's wrath is severe for those who die in unbelief, and eternal hell is the punishment, and Jude wants the body of Christ to beware. So, Jude has told us what to do up to this point. We have to contend for the faith. He's told us why. Because certain persons have crept in unnoticed, bringing in destructive heresies. He's told us that the wrath of God awaits these individuals, and he's given us some past encounters demonstrating that wrath. And now we come to our passage for this morning where Jews going to go beyond all of that, and he's going to dis- describe the nature, the character of these apostates, those who have crept in unnoticed. What do they look like. And so I've titled this morning's sermon, The Acts of the Apostates. We have the Acts of the Apostles, and now we have the Acts of the Apostates here. So let's just read. I want to start on verse 8, which is going to be our primary verse this morning, but I'm going to read down to verse 16. Let's listen to how Jude describes these apostates. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. 
But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars from whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation of Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. That's quite the description. It's precise, it's sensational, it's even a bit shocking, really. It's also uncannily parallel to what we find in Second Peter about the same group of people, and so it's not just in Jude. In fact, listen to, to Peter's description in Second Peter 9-16. through 16. He says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desire and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment even against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reviling, revealing their deceptions as they carouse with you having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the sons of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of a prophet. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? lot of similarities. So, hopping back to Jude, in verse 8, this morning we're going to see three characteristics of apostates' nature. Three characteristics of the apostates' nature. Firstly, we're going to see that they desecrate the flesh. He says, yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh. So they desecrate the flesh. We're going to see that they despise authority. 
In other words, they reject authority, the text says. And we're going to see that they defame glories. The text says that these men revile angelic majesties. They defame glories. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh. We'll stop on that one. It's a transitional phrase, right? It starts with in the same way. And that's important because it's tying the text of the previous passages. Well, who are these men? Well, we've been going verse by verse. And so just to connect that, these men are the ones who have, go back up a few verses, crept in unnoticed, right? And he goes on to compare the ones hidden in the church today to the Israelites, which we saw. He compares them to the fallen angels, which we've seen, and he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so in this first part, we see a general characteristic amongst false teachers, amongst pseudo-Christians, amongst apostates, namely that they desecrate or that they defile the flesh. And this comes as a result of dreaming, the text tells us. Well, what in the world does that mean, dreaming? I mean, I dream, you probably dream. There are a couple different approaches to what that means. I'll give you both of the primary ones. John Calvin says it this way, and I quote, And he says, first, he meaning Jude, that they polluted their flesh, as it were, by dreaming, by which words he denotes their stupid effrontery or arrogance, as though he had said that they abandoned themselves to all kinds of filth, which the most wicked abhor, except sleep took away the shame and also consciousness. It is then a metaphorical mode of speaking by which he intimates that they were so dull and stupid as to fire up themselves without any shame to every kind of baseness. He didn't mince any more words there. Another source says that these dreams were like the dreams of false teachers. In other words, their own vain imaginings. Well, this isn't hard to uh, believe. This is, could be a good interpretation. If you're familiar with modern-day false teachers, right, you know that they often use their own dreams as a supposed source of authority. Uh, even today, in fact, it is very common to hear Phrases like, well, God showed me in a dream. In fact, I've seen it within the past week. Or, I had a dream and this is what the Holy Spirit is saying. In fact, I can recall of an instance where a man came into the church and actually said, the Holy Spirit told me to divorce my wife and marry this other woman. Yep, he said that he had picked the wrong one and God was correcting him and so... He needed to divorce one and marry the other. Jude says, Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh. And it's interesting. In the Old Testament, the word dreamer was almost always referring to a false prophet. Listen to this. You can uh, flip to Deuteronomy if you want. Uh, 13. I'll just read the first couple of verses here. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Jude then, after saying these are dreamers, tells us that they defile the flesh. We see that very thing in Deuteronomy, right? The defiling of the flesh here actually refers to the physical body, so in the same way you would stain or dye a material. You could say that they pollute the body, they contaminate the flesh, or they soil the flesh. In other words, they engage in sexual immorality is what we're talking about here. So Jude gives us the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is known for that. If we don't know anything else about Sodom and Gomorrah, we know that about them. Apostates inevitably end up in sexual immorality. Now, it's not always known while they're alive. The most recent example is that of the late Ravi Zacharias. So we don't always find out why they're living. Ted Haggard is another example. If you're familiar with him, Ted Haggard is a disgraced preacher who regularly fought against homosexuality. He publicly advocated against the legalization of same sexual marriage, and yet, back in November 2006, he made national headlines because it was discovered that he was regularly paying for male prostitutes. And in addition to that, he was also using drugs secretly. It was eventually found out that he had also inappropriate relationships with young men in his church. These apostates defile the flesh. They have no power to restrain their lustful passions because they do not know God. And this is the point Jude would make. They desecrate, they stain, they defile the flesh. Now, not only do they defile the flesh, but Jude also says that they despise authority. They reject authority. It's not a difficult stretch, right? To believe if it, it follows that if such men are immoral and they're dreamers coming up with lies to use as false authority, that they would reject natural, true authority, right? They reject biblical authority. In fact, the word used here is actually related to the term kurios, which is Lord. In other words, these men reject the lordship of Christ. They opposed the established authority of Christ and the teachings of the faith, which were once for all handed down to the saints. They seek to rule their own lives and often the lives of others out of the follies and imaginings of their own feeble brains. They despise the truth and they reject that which is good and pure in favor of their own rule. Oftentimes, you'll see these men building their own empires Right? They govern themselves. They're a law unto themselves. They do whatever is right in their own eyes. You know, it's interesting. Jesus addressed this very similar thing with the Pharisees in Matthew. Jesus said this, You are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of 
of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Character of apostates. See it all through Scripture. So they seem to be Christian on the outside, but they're false on the inside. They're dead, they're doomed, they're marked out for condemnation, Jude says. This is how they're hidden in the body of Christ. In verse 12, Jude says, These are men who are hidden reeves in your love feasts. When they feast without you, without fear. Partially they can hide because they have no fear of God. They have no fear of the authority of God. And so they can appear outwardly as though they are one of the true church. All the while they're bringing in deadly heresies. They don't have any fear of authority because they despise it. They've rejected it. Jude says that they've denied our only master and Lord in verse 4. So, we've seen that they've crept in. They hide amongst us. They're like those Jude recounted in the Exodus story of the fall of the angels and of Sodom and Gomorrah. They desecrate the flesh, doing what's abominable and unnatural. They engage in all kinds of immoralities. So not only do they do those things, they defile the flesh and they reject authority, but they also defame angelic majesties. These are seditious men who really love anarchy. They love the lawlessness that fails to confront their sin, and they despise the law that would restrain them. A common message from these guys would be grace, grace, grace. Right? In our passages earlier, we hear that these are men who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. We certainly do have the grace of God, but as Paul says, we should never presume upon that grace. So these men despise the very law that would restrain them. Paul captures this reality pretty well in 1 Timothy. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men, and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. These men reject all authority, and the law is meant to bring the weight of God to bear on them. And so we see all this. We see that they reject authority, that they corrupt their flesh. And then we come to this last one, which is actually very strange and probably the most unique of this passage. They defame or revile angelic majesties. What on earth does that mean? Um, there are a couple schools of thought as to what this refers to. It's either that they actually blaspheme angels, or perhaps that they defame glories, as in the glories of Christ and of God. Uh, the, the word for that's translated there is actually the word we get doxology from, or glory. Um, in either case, what we see is an irreverent and distasteful posture toward, towards the holy things of God. This isn't hard to spot either. So maybe they deny the deity of Christ, such as Phil John, uh, Bill Johnson. Sorry, Phil. I meant Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson. <laughs> 
Or maybe they refuse the whole personhood of each member of the Trinity like J.D. Uh, like T.D. Jakes. They could deny the atonement or the virgin birth. Whatever the case is, the fact is here that they revile the glories of God and perhaps even the angels. We see this very thing in the charismatic church today. It's not uncommon to hear things like, yeah, I was just looking up and I saw this holy angel just chilling out in the rafters watching us because we were getting our worship on. That is almost a quote verbatim. That's bad enough, right? Because angels are carriers of messages of God. They don't just hang around because they think we are so cool to look at. That's irreverent enough in and of itself. But there are certainly even more blasphemous things said of angels. We'll give an example. Sometime back, Bill Johnson's daughter-in-law, Jen Johnson, gave the perfect example of this as she was teaching on stage. And I'm just going to read you the quote so you can hear it for yourself. And I quote, And I thought of those angels circling that throne, and I thought I bet they text each other. I bet they have farting contests. End quote. And of course, when she said that, the crowd at Bethel burst out in laughter and they applauded and they loved it. When's the last time you've heard something as irreverent as that? She goes on to say, God is a heck of a lot more fun than we think he is. If that's not blaspheming angels or reviling glories, then I don't know what is. These are just some examples. These are the same people, by the way, that run around binding Satan, who happens to be a fallen angel, as though they have the authority to do that. But everyone really wants to know that if they had the ability to bind Satan, then why on earth do they keep letting him go every week? And if this church is binding him, and that church is binding him, and they're all binding him on Sunday, how do they decide who gets to bind him? It's quite ridiculous, isn't it? But the arrogance and the irreverence of those things are really, truly astounding. I mean, speaking of not actually having the authority to bind Satan, if you put your eyes down on verse 9 of Jude, it says this, But Michael, the archangel... When he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand. Not even did Michael, who was an archangel, have the authority to rebuke Satan. What makes mankind think he can do that? Other than that they revile angelic majesties. No, instead, Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. And the only reason he said that was because he had the authority to do that. We have been given that authority. We can't command demons. We can't bind Satan. We can't send Satan to the abyss like I've heard so many false teachers claim. I can't tell you how many times I've heard Kenneth Copeland cast Satan into the abyss. Clearly, it's not working. 
But more importantly, to attempt to do that, it's not just ignorant and foolish, but it is irreverent. Jude says it's reviling angelic majesties. It supposes a power even more significant than that of the archangel Michael, who does God's direct bidding. So there are plenty of ways that one can be irreverent, whether it's explicitly reviling angelic majesties, like we've given a few examples, or just more generally, the glories of God. What's true is that apostates in general exhibit this type of character in some form or another. Apostates have always had similar characteristics. No matter what age we live in, no matter how developed or lack of developed a country is, we see these things. We see that they desecrate the body. They defile the body. We see that they despise God-given authority. And we see that they defame angelic majesties. In fact, perhaps one of the most egregious examples in our own culture would be Jim Jones. I don't know if you remember Jim Jones, but I'll just read you a short excerpt about him that kind of recounts the story. If you're not familiar with Jim Jones specifically, <clears throat> you will be in a moment. Um, the reality is that by the time that happened, and I'll just go ahead and quote here, in a century when people have become numb to the bizarre and cruel and almost unshockable, People sat stunned as they watched news broadcasts from Guyana where hundreds of bodies of Jim Jones cult members lay dead and bloated. One of the largest mass suicides in history left more than 900 dead, including the cult leader himself. Jim Jones, so by the way, I'll interject here. Jim Jones is the one that uh, gave, talked everyone into drinking the poison Kool-Aid. Also, as a side note, about 300 of those 900 were actually children. Jim Jones had put up a great front for years. Blacks and whites alike rushed to join his movement. They became fiercely loyal to him. Jones pro professed to be a Christian. He actually regularly preached out of the Bible. Local authorities believed in his work so thoroughly that they even committed youths who were wards of the state into his care. But the facts that had not seeped out before his death began to pour out right after the mass suicide scene. It was discovered that Jones was a sexually depraved man who demonstrated heinous cruelty to those around him, showing no respect for the commands and authority of God. He was motivated by greed and self-glorification. Jones's character and conduct are a living example of apostates who our false teachers who crept into the church. He amassed a huge following as a, quote, man of God. He's a perfect example of our passage this morning. He defiled his body with sexual perversion. He rejected authority. He reviled glories, angelic majesties. He used God's word and power and greed to manipulate and ultimately to murder nearly a thousand people. Now, I think it's fortunate that most false teachers, these men who have crept in, in which Jude speaks of, never do harm to the physical body, but in reality they do far worse. They attempt to lead the soul to destruction. The destruction of the body is 
certainly evil. What Jim Jones did was most definitely an atrocious evil. But the destruction of a soul is far, far worse. And Jude warns us, Jude calls us to be on guard. Jude says we must contend for the faith. And he gives us these characteristics that are so common to false teachers so that we might be guarded against them. It says, Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand. Well, that's pretty common amongst false teachers, right? There's a reason they often teach in using these very esoteric words and things that no one can pinpoint or put their finger on or point towards Scripture because they're dreaming them up and using it as an authority. But Jude says that they do not understand. He goes on to say, And the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. He calls them unreasoning animals. I guess he didn't get the memo for the 11th commandment. By these things they are destroyed, he says. So he tells us that we need to fight. He points towards the destruction of the Israelites in the wilderness and the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah to say this is what awaits apostates. And then he says, look, this is the character of apostates. This is what to look for. This is what to beware of. And while we might not always see this while they're living, surely they're there. And so Jude would have us to be on guard against these blasphemers, these defilers, and would encourage us to contend for the faith.